Our sermon text this morning is going to be Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 14, but for the sake of context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, give here the word of God. Paul writes, and Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful and are faithful in Christ Jesus, a grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that we might know the way of life through faith in Jesus Christ, your son, that we might know how you would have us to live uh, out of gratitude for your love towards us in Christ. And so we ask that you would, this morning, work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, renew our minds and transform our lives. Equip us for every good work that we might live in a way that's glorifying to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in uh, Ephesians 1, 3, which we just read, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that every believer in Christ has been blessed by God with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verses 4 through 14, what he does is briefly, kind of in rapid-fire succession, list uh, what many of those blessings are. It kind of brings to my mind the words of Psalm 103, verses 1 through 2, where, the, where, where David says this. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then what does he say? And forget not all his benefits. So he's praising God, and what's he praising him for? Not only for his glory, but for the many blessings and benefits that he has given him and given every believer. Now, if you know Psalm 103, I won't read the rest of it for you today, but if you know Psalm 103 at all, you'll know that the rest of the psalm, he basically does what Paul does here. He says, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits, and he starts listing what those benefits, many of those benefits are. And the first one he mentions there in Psalm 103 is that he forgives all your sins, and he heals all your diseases. Well, Paul does something similar here. Uh, he tells us about all the blessings and, that, that God has given us in Christ, 
in the heavenly places. And then what does he do? He starts listing and reminding us of all the many blessings, not all of them, but the many of them that, that God has given us by his grace in Christ. And so, you know, if you ever need to be reminded of the many spiritual blessings that you have in Christ, if you're a Christian, and I think many of us very often need to be reminded of those things, uh, you could do a whole lot worse uh, than considering Paul's words in the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians here in chapter 1. So what we see in these verses, in verses 3 through 14, you see one of the things that maybe you picked up on as we were reading the text uh, this morning is that our salvation in Christ is thoroughly Trinitarian in nature. It's, you know, it's, it's right there on the page, almost jumping off the page at you when you read it, but Paul tells us in no, certain, in no uncertain terms that of all these blessings of our salvation, they are Trinitarian in nature. That is, they are the work, these blessings are, of all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a good reminder to us, as always, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that we can take or leave. It's not just something for uh, theologians to be interested in. Uh, it is essential. It is an essential part of what the Scripture teaches. It's an essential truth of the Christian faith. Uh, it, it's, it's a vital part of what the Bible teaches us about God, and it's a vital part of our salvation. The truth that there's only one true and living God who exists in three persons, and that these three, as the Shorter Catechism says, these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Uh, it's, it's essential both to the Christian faith, and as Paul tells us here in our text, the Trinity is an essential part of the gospel. There is no gospel without the doctrine and the reality and the truth of the Trinity. God the Father, what does he tell us in this short passage? God the Father decreed or planned our redemption or salvation, not just determining to send his son to die in the place of sinners on the cross in the fullness of time, as he says in verse 10, but also in choosing us and predestining us unto salvation in him, including our justification and adoption as sons, as Paul says in verses 4 through 6. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, God the Father decreed our salvation. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished our redemption through his blood, verse 7. And how did he do that? He took on flesh and he died on the cross for our sins so that all things will be united and restored in him, as Paul says in verses 9 through 10. Well, this morning being Pentecost Sunday, we're going to focus our attention mainly on verses 11 through 14, where Paul tells us about the work of God the Holy Spirit in our redemption. Just as Christ accomplished our redemption on the cross, even so the Holy Spirit applies that redemption that Christ has purchased to everyone who believes. Christ accomplished our salvation, the Holy Spirit applies that salvation and redemption to us who believe. And so in these verses, you might notice that Paul tells us that God not only has predestined us to an inheritance, verse 11, but also that we have been sealed, he says in verse 13, sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit unto that inheritance that he has predestined us for. And so it is the Holy Spirit himself who is, Paul says in verse 14, the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's the guarantee of heaven for every believer. The Holy Spirit's work in our salvation, you might know, is 
Uh, it's vitally important, and yet his person and work in our salvation, especially I think in maybe reform circles like ours, uh, but elsewhere as well, that the work and person of the Holy Spirit is often a doctrine that is much neglected or ignored on the one hand, and in other places it's distorted and overemphasized. On the other hand, we want to avoid both those extremes uh, at all times, especially with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to ignore that. We don't, you know, sometimes we, I think, come across as, you know, we see some of the errors and extremes in the Pentecostal movement, and we don't want to be associated with that, so we kind of shy away from much talk of the Holy Spirit, and yet the Bible is full of talk and doctrine about the Holy Spirit. I, I won't uh, go through it right now, but I was reading through Romans chapter 8. I considered preaching on that this morning, but there's so much there I couldn't fit it all in one sermon, I don't believe. Romans 8, you know, many of us, I would guess, there's many of you in this room who if I were to say, what's your what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? I bet many of us would, would raise our hands quickly and say Romans 8 without even giving it much thought. Read Romans 8 again. Read Romans 8 again. Notice how many times Paul brings up the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. It's throughout the chapter, especially the first half. It's almost every verse. And what's Romans 8 about? The security of our salvation in Christ, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And who is largely responsible for that fact, that great assurance of our salvation? The work of the Holy Spirit. It's his work, as Paul says here in our text, who seals us as belonging to Christ, that we are purchased with his blood. He seals us unto the day of redemption, and he is, as Paul says, the guarantee, uh, guarantee not to God, but to us of our inheritance. But we're going to see, Lord willing, uh, three things from our text today in verses 11 through 14. One, we're going to see that we have been predestined to an inheritance. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been predestined by God to an inheritance in Christ. Number two, we have been given a pledge of our inheritance until we possess it in heaven. And third, all of this, the predestinating of God unto our inheritance, the pledge of that inheritance in the Holy Spirit, all of that is to be to the praise of the glory of the God of our salvation. Doctrine should lead, as always, right doctrine, rightly understood, should lead to doxology or praise. Uh, if it doesn't, we really haven't understood anything very well at all. Doctrine, rightly understood, should be not only applied, but it should lead to praise and doxology. So the first point this morning is that Paul tells us we have been in Christ predestined to an inheritance. Look at verse 11. He says, in him, that's in Christ. That's a phrase you see over and over in this passage. In Christ, in him, through him. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that Paul says, we have obtained it. He doesn't say you're going to have it. Now, we haven't come into possession of it and the full enjoyment of it, but he says it in the past tense. We have obtained it. We, we're not just predestined to something future. Just like back in verse 5 when Paul says that God, quote, predestined us for adoption as sons. Well, you're sons of God now through Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. And so, even so here, he says that we were adopted as sons. We were predestined also to an inheritance as sons. That's what sons do. 
from their fathers. They inherit. We have been adopted in, into God's family through Christ, and so we have been predestined in him also to inherit something. Now, in some sense, it's a present reality, even if we don't experience the fullness of it at this time. None of us, I think, it's safe to say, can say that we are experiencing the fullness of the, of the experience of our inheritance. We aren't in heaven yet. Maybe you didn't realize that, but this is not, uh, this is not it. This is not heaven. Um, and that's, that's one of the many spiritual blessings that God has graciously given, graciously given us in Christ is this inheritance. Now, you may think to yourself, that's not something I hear of very often in, in church, but the idea of God's people having an inheritance is a very important and common theme throughout Scripture. You know, the ESV, the translation that we tend to use here, uses the noun form inheritance at least 184 times. The verb form to inherit, it uses it over 40 times. All through the Old Testament, you might know that you read of the inheritance of God's people in the promised land. The book of Joshua, what's the book of Joshua about? The book of Joshua is about the conquest of Canaan and dividing up the land by lot to assign each of the tribes of Israel their inheritance, their portion of the promised land. In the 24 chapters of the book of Joshua alone, the word inheritance occurs over 50 times. An average of over twice per chapter. It's the theme of the book. God leading his people by his grace into their inheritance and fulfilling his promise to them back then. But the idea of an inheritance for the people of God is not just an Old Testament thing. In fact, the New Testament repeatedly talks about the inheritance of God's people, not just in our present text, but also in other passages. The inheritance in the land of Canaan that, that you read of in the book of Joshua was typological. It was a foreshadowing of something greater. And what is that? The inheritance that we have in heaven, where God dwells with, with us, with his people Forever in the Beatitudes, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, Jesus tell us, tells us that the meek will do what? The meek shall inherit the earth. Peacemakers shall be called sons of God, verse 9. Paul himself speaks of our inheritance in Christ repeatedly. He mentions it in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, where he's addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says this. He tells the elders of Ephesus, he says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do what? It's able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's a continuing thing that Paul brings up again and again. Paul speaks of our inheritance in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in Galatians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 3. Here in the book of Ephesians, Chapter 1, he mentions it at least three times. Verse 11, verse 14, and later on in verse 18. It's a theme he's hitting over and over again. He tells the Ephesian believers then and us as well now about it here in Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14, and then again in verses 15 to 23. He tells them that he prayed for them. Paul's telling them, he tells them about the blessings that God has given them in Christ, and he tells them how he himself prayed for them that their eyes of their hearts might be enlightened so that they might understand, verse 18, quote, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He's bringing it up again and again. He really wanted them, and I think us, to grasp how great 
our inheritance in Christ really is. And, you know, if you think about, you know, Rob just mentioned the persecuted church in his, in his prayer a few moments ago. When you think about the, the state of the church throughout history and how often the church has suffered, even violent persecution has lost uh, family and homes and land and even their lives. Uh, that is the case in many places even today. That's not some old thing of past history. The church very often is persecuted now. And so the thought of the inheritance that you have where moth cannot uh, you know, make it decay, thieves can't break in and steal, and rust can't destroy, that kind of a, of a thing, the truth of our inheritance in Christ is something that keeps us going. It should. The hope of heaven should be something that keeps us going and strengthens us in time of trial and affliction. Well, Paul turns again to that subject of inheritance in Ephesians 5, verse 5, where he says, he tells us that we can be sure that, here it is, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, what does he say? Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's throughout the book he brings it up again and again. So we may not give our inheritance much thought, but it's a very important theme in Scripture, and it's a big part of our salvation in Christ. When we take stock of all the blessings that you have in Christ, and we have all the spiritual blessings in Christ, one that we should take note of is our inheritance in Christ. Now, you know, we're really just scratching the surface of this topic in our sermon this morning, but our inheritance is better than we can even imagine. We don't, we don't just have stuff. We don't just have heaven as, as if heaven was a place uh, of just existing forever, free of the miseries of this life. Our inheritance is that we belong to God uh, as our Savior, and, and we are his own treasured possession, bought with the blood of Christ himself, and that he himself is ours. He is our God, and we are his people. We don't just have gifts, although we have many gifts. We have the giver of every good and perfect gift, as well as James 1.16. Now, our, our inheritance in Christ, as I mentioned, is not just great. It's not just unfathomable to us. It's also, thankfully, secure. Your inheritance in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, your inheritance is secure. Paul doesn't want us to worry that we might lose it. So he tells us, first, that we were predestined to it predestined to it, but also that we were predestined to it according to the purpose of him, verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When Paul wants to assure us that we cannot lose our salvation and our inheritance, what does he point us to? The sovereignty of God and salvation, that he predestined us to the inheritance and that that predestination was according to the purpose of him, that's God, who works All things, according to the counsel of his will, God's purposes cannot fail. His sovereign will and control extends to all things, Paul says, so that no matter what happens, it cannot thwart his purposes for our inheritance. God's sovereign grace in the election and salvation of sinners, you know, it's really a predominant theme throughout this entire passage, verses 3 through 14, you know, back in verse 4, you know, He says you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. What's the first one he brings up? I would guess if I asked you, or if you asked me, to write a list of the blessings you have in Christ, I don't know if any of us would think of this one, much less to put it first. And it is the first one that Paul says. The first of these great blessings that God has given us in Christ is in verse 4, and that is that he, that is God, he 
chose us in him, that's in Christ, and when did he do it? Before the foundation of the world. Before, before day one of creation, God chose us, for, foreordained and predestined us to be in Christ and be holy and blameless before him in love in Christ. Predestined, uh, before, chosen before the foundation. Well, then in verse 5, in case that wasn't enough, he adds that God also predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He didn't just choose us in him. He chose us in him that we might be justified and adopted into his family. And then in case that wasn't enough, last but not least, in verse 11, he tells us that we have what? Obtained an inheritance how? According to the predestination of God. And then if that were enough, he adds that this predestination by the grace of God uh, is what? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. All things. Remember Jesus says uh, in the Gospels, uh, you know, the hairs of your head are numbered and not, you know, two birds are sold for a penny, but not one falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. A bird hitting the ground dead doesn't happen apart from God's will. What's the point? If God is sovereign over the little tiny things like, like sparrows dying, he's certainly sovereign over your salvation, over all things. And if he weren't, your salvation could not be Secure. God works all things according to the counsel and decree of his will. Not only has God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, but he also preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions in such a way that all that he has foreordained will and can't help but infallibly come to pass in time. That is the doctrine of the scriptures, and that is the doctrine of the Westminster Shorter Catechism I just quoted. A couple times there in that. Now, what a blessed assurance those truths are for us who have believed in Christ for salvation, that you can know that your salvation and your inheritance in Christ is eternally secure. Why? Because it's rooted in the decree, the eternal decree and sovereign grace of God. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination and God's providence should not be something that we just argue and haggle over. It should be something that is a great source of comfort to every believer's heart who understands these things. Nothing in all of creation can overturn God's eternal decree or prevent his all-wise, all-powerful, and all-encompassing providence regarding our salvation in Christ. What a blessing that is, and that's why Paul hits this tone, this note, three or four times in this short passage. He hits that note again and again. Well, this, the next thing you want to look at in our text uh, is the pledge of our inheritance, the pledge of our inheritance. Here Paul goes into detail about the work of the Holy Spirit in your salvation and mine. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. He writes there, In him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our deliverance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, what's a seal? You know, we talk about signs and seals. We talk about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New. What? They are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. What does a sign do? A sign points to something else. Right? So we, we sometimes when we have our uh, 
uh, membership interviews. Uh, if you'd like to interview for membership, uh, see me and me or Rob after the service. Uh, but if, if you uh, are interviewed, one of the things we ask very often is the symbolism or the significance of the sacraments, specifically of the Lord's Supper. We'll ask things, not a trick question, so I'm preparing you for the quiz, right? Uh, what does the bread and the cup signify, the word signs right there, or represent? The bread is his body broken for, our, for us, for our salvation, and the blood, the, the cup rather, signifies, represents, his blood shed for our redemption from sin. Well, in the same way, the Holy Spirit is, is not just a sign. He is a seal. What is a seal? You know, a seal is something that it's a mark of authenticity. It is a mark of authority. And it's even a mark of ownership. Well, in the same way as that, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. He is the mark of authenticity that we really are children of God by his grace in Christ. Uh, it's a symbol of his authority over us. It's also a symbol of his ownership that we have been, we do not belong to ourselves, but we have been bought with the price, the price of the blood of God's Son. Now, what has God given to us to mark us out as his own? Well, outwardly he's given us baptism, but inwardly he's given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit himself who seals us and marks us as his own. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says this, Romans 8, 16 to 17 says the, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, here's the theme of inheritance, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul then goes on in verse 14 to tell us that the Holy Spirit not only seals us unto our inheritance, but they also is himself, the word he uses here in the ESV, is the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the earnest or the down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance. The, the word here that Paul uses has the idea of a deposit or a down payment. It's, it's a little bit like on the day of Pentecost in some sense, that, that first fruits, the first fruits, the reason that that was such a big thing was, it was the hint or the down payment of what was to come. It was kind of the sign that the rest of the harvest was sure to come. In a similar way, God gives us his Holy Spirit as a deposit, so to speak, of our inheritance in heaven, that we might be assured of it and know of it as being guaranteed to us. Now, how do we know if we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit to salvation? How do you and I know if we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us as the guarantee or deposit of our inheritance in heaven? You know, many of our charismatic brothers and sisters would, would say that the so-called gift of tongues is the telltale mark or indicator of the work of the Holy Spirit. But does Paul say any such thing here or anywhere else? No, he certainly does not. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, do all speak in tongues? No, certainly not. All don't speak in tongues. So how do we know? What is it that you and I should be looking for to know that we have the Holy Spirit within us, sealing us for the day of redemption and guaranteeing our inheritance? Look again at verse 13. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and sealing you for the day of redemption? And your inheritance, well, you know if you've heard the gospel and believed in Christ. 
If you have heard the gospel and believed on Christ for salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's really as simple as that. Brian Chapel, in his commentary, writes this. In this case, the proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit is not indicated by a distant expression of extraordinary charismatic gifts, but rather the immediate fact that God has brought the person to saving faith. Belief itself indicates the presence of the seal, the mark, of the Spirit of God that guarantees we are God's children. Here it is. Because without the Spirit, we could not and would not believe. Another way of saying that is, which comes first, regeneration or faith? Regeneration does, because dead and sin people don't believe in Christ. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to faith and to give us life in Christ. So, we, you know, we might look for extraordinary outward signs, but I think if we do that, it's because we don't really understand or appreciate the miracle of the new birth. The work of the Holy Spirit within us. We think that we are fully capable, I think, at times. We think foolishly that we on our own are fully capable of turning to Christ by faith. All by ourselves. Well, I think, if I won't go into this now, but read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Paul will disabuse you of that notion if you have any thought of that. But that's a sermon for another day. Um, that's one of the reasons that Paul in verses 15 to 23, as we noted before, that he prayed for the Ephesian Christians. What? that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they might grasp, quote, the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Even the fact that you're trusting in Christ for salvation is a miracle, an act of God's supernatural work by his spirit in you. Dead men don't believe. You know, dead men tell no tales. Dead men don't believe. And so if you believe in Christ, you have been born again by the spirit of God, whether you realize it, or not. If you're a believer, God is powerfully at work in you through his Holy Spirit, who even now indwells you. The, the promised Holy Spirit himself indwelling, sealing, sanctifying, and securing you unto salvation in Christ is a blessing too great to comprehend. The Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin puts it this way. He says, God the Father had but two grand gifts to bestow, and when once they should be given out of him, he had left them nothing that was great comparatively to give. For they contained all good in them, and these two gifts were his son, who was the promise in the old was his promise in the Old Testament, and his spirit, the promise of the new. God has given us his son for our redemption, and his spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. What else could he possibly give than that? Everything else is small change in comparison to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that he gave them to us, to, to little nothing sinners made of dust like us. That is who he has given to us. And if God has given them to us, as, as Paul says, how will he not also with him, with Christ, freely give us all things? He's not holding back on us if he's given us his Son and his Spirit. Well, the, the third and final thing we'll look at briefly this morning is that uh, all of this should lead to praise. Paul, you get the feeling when you read his epistles, uh, he was a singing man. He praised God constantly. Remember when he was in the, the jail in Philippi? What, what, what did they do in prison? In the middle of the prison, when they, had, they were put in stocks, they were singing hymns at midnight, keeping the neighbors up. They were singing praise to God. Well, the final thing that Paul tells us in our text 
is that God deserves praise for the glory and blessing of the inheritance we have in Christ. In verse 12, Paul says that we who believe in Christ are what? To be to the praise of his glory. We ourselves, God's work and grace in us, should be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, he says that the guarantee of our inheritance and the acquisition of it on that last day is also what? To the praise of his glory. The proper response to God's grace in our salvation in Christ is the praise of his glory. It's a sanctified life as well, to be sure, but the praise of his glory, that's the proper response. That's the only fitting response to God's blessing in Christ to each one of us, is to praise him. A right understanding of our inheritance in Christ, which is why Paul prayed for it so much, a right understanding of our inheritance in Christ should lead us to give praise to God for his glory. Again, doctrine should lead to doxology or praise. If it doesn't, then we haven't understood it very well at all. Do you want to learn to praise God for his glorious grace more? I hope that you do. Then think much on what his word tells you about the glorious grace of God in Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, study theology, study the Bible and see what it says about the gospel. Then your heart will learn more and more to overflow with praise like Paul does here in the opening of this letter. In fact, you know, people have often said, commentators have often said that these first 14 verses of, of Ephesians 1, uh, it would have got an F in, in composition class. It's like one big run-on sentence. Like Paul's out of breath. You almost picture him out of breath writing it, much less saying it. When I was reading it up front, I had to pause a few times. He's just boom, 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 boom. Look at all these blessings God has given us in Christ by his grace that we don't deserve a bit of it. And he just lists all these great things God has done for us. Uh, and think about where Paul was when he wrote this letter. It's, we call it one of the prison epistles. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, but you'd never know it by reading these words in chapter 1. His words of praise for God's grace. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, at this point, he, that's Paul, introduces the idea of God's purpose, showing it to be that God himself might be glorified. In other words, everything we have in Christ comes from God, beginning in his will and ending in his glory. It is God-centered from beginning to end. To our God be the glory for his great blessing of our ensure inheritance in Christ that we will one day possess in heaven. Amen.